from WBOY Fort Wayne. From WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne, this is the I Am Immigrant, and I am Ahmed Abdelmajid. I am a Palestinian immigrant who has been donning the title of immigrant for the past 24 years of my life. I am interested in conversations around the immigrant experience, conversation that we seem to be not having or we seem to be not knowing how to have. For this podcast series, I'm hoping that we have conversations with different immigrants about all that it entails to be an immigrant. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, Ahmed Abdelmajid, host of the podcast, The Eye and Immigrant. And again, I am joined by the wonderful Katie Anderson. Hello, Katie. Hey, Ahmed. It's good to be here. And today is kind of a special episode. Today is a very special episode. It's our very first Zoom recorded episode. And it's also the first time that we're talking with people who are from outside of Northeast Indiana as well. So we're very excited to get the word out about this really special podcast and kind of the idea of building better relationships and understanding between one another. Absolutely. And today we are joined by Ismail and Brittany, and I'll uh, have them introduce themselves in a, in a minute. But I actually, my wife and I, our families have met back when we all lived in Bangor, Maine, out of all places. We were talking about this before we started recording about a decade ago, actually, we met. Back then, we had a little child. They didn't have any kids. And now we're both with our families that are growing. And they are on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon, or the Portland, Oregon area. Where are you guys Carvalho, at again? Corvallis, sorry, Corvallis. I think Oregon and all I think about is Portland. So <laughs> yeah, That's okay. All right, so Ismail and Brittany, could you guys just give us a quick introduction uh, to yourselves? Who are you? Okay, I'll get started. Uh, my name is Ismail uh, Jirda Warsame. I live in uh, Corvallis, Oregon right now. Uh, this is, I would say, my 20th year in the United States. been here a couple decades. I'm a father of two and uh, a husband. I work at Oregon State University as a college administrator. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a center director at uh, one of the cultural centers named Ikihad Cultural Center. My family is kind of scattered all over the, all around the world, basically. And I think but Oregon happens to be where we, where we have the most family, at least from my side. Very good. And we will get to talking to you and your experience and your journey to the United States in a moment. But Brittany, where are you from? Hi, I was born and raised in Maine. Brunswick, Maine was where I was born. And I kind of went back and forth between Southern Maine and Bangor. Graduated high school and went to college there. And then we moved out to Oregon. We have two children, an eight-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. And Zaid and Zakia are their names. For the first, I don't know, probably seven years we lived out here, I did not work. I just stayed home with them. Mm-hmm. Then I've been in childcare, teaching preschool, and now I work at the gym that I attend. So just building community here in Corvallis, lots of moms that I'm involved with here, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you and catching up. It sounds great. You guys have always been a active and involved couple, and it's great to see that wherever you are, you're making a difference. Can you tell us about your background? Where are you from? You know, the question that we typically get once people figure out our accent. So where are you from? When did you move to the U.S. and your journey to where you're at right now? Yeah, so that question is actually a good question that uh, that comes up a lot. You yeah. know? <laughs> I. I still have people welcoming me to the city after 10 years. <laughs> uh, so when I hear the, the question, where are you from? Usually it means, depending on the context, I give the short answer, the long answer, and like some kind of medium answer. Give us Usually, the long answer here. Yeah, so I will give you the long answer. I was born in Somalia. So that's kind of my long answer. Obviously, I, mean, I will have to add more context in it. And during, in a prior to the civil war in Somalia, but... In my childhood, we ended up, you know, leaving Somalia. In fact, I left Somalia as a teenager in 1998, and I wasn't coming to here, but it was just a, supposedly a short-term leaving Somalia and then, you know, supposedly going back later. Uh, it never happened. I, and then the rest of the family all left at different times, but we eventually, most of us converged in Kenya, 
that's where you uh, a lot of people in Somalia after the civil war they became refugees. So as so, a teenager, you moved to Kenya. Yes, first we moved okay. to Kenya as the, as the first country we've been to, and we actually crossed the border illegally. So I tell people like my first trip out of Somalia was undocumented, mm. <laughs> <laughs> although it was by flight. And then we stayed there in about year, two years and a half, and then we finally migrated to the United States. We got a resettlement, and we were settled in Portland, Maine, and that's where I went to high school. And then after that, I after I graduated from high school, I attended the University of Maine, which is in Orono near Bangor. So yeah, actually, then that's where my wife and I met, and where I met you and a lot of the great community over there. And then after I graduated, finished my undergrad and master's program. Happened to be also the same university that Brainy attended. And we ended up both starting our real life experience and in terms of careers and family. We had our both of our kids in Oregon. And that's where we also ended up having, you know, really, we stayed here, I think, probably the longest, at least for me, the longest one city mm -hmm. I stayed in Oregon. The current residency we have is the longest house I ever lived. So I mean, we're getting a little bit of, I think, stability here. It's becoming home in a, in a way. Very well connected, like you mentioned, the community and both Portland also. We have that area also where that's where my father and two of my sisters and their families live. And then also we are very invested in our own community here in Corvallis. Very nice. Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of what drove you out of Somalia to Kenya? To I mean, something has pushed you out to venture, as you put it, undocumented or, re or legally into Kenya. And that wasn't just to, to go make more money or whatever. Something significant has pushed you there. Can you give us a, a, an understanding of that? Yeah. So most people, when they, as you may know, when they are, when they become refugees, they usually, there's a process. You don't become a refugee overnight. Usually it involves like some kind of a either civil war, some other persecution or whatever. So we had a civil war in Somalia in 1991. And when that happened, a lot of families fled. But my family actually, they tried to weather the storm and stay. So mm -hmm. we just moved from one part of the, one part of the city to another part of the city. Then eventually from the same, we're living in the Mogadishu at the time, the capital. And then we ended up moving to another city altogether. So we kind of bounced around mm -hmm. going back and forth. And that's what's called internally displaced persons or IDP. So we were IDP, internally displaced in the, within Somalia, eventually until some of my siblings who were older than us and they started like leaving, with, of course, with the permission of my father, because the situation was getting worse. There was ripple effects of the civil war. The entire government institutions failed. There was no good schooling. There was no hospitals that were really good. There's a lot of problems that come with when the state just fails and there's mm -hmm. a lot of dysfunction, there's lack of security. My father was an electrical engineer. At the time, he was out of work. I mean, obviously, that was very typical. Your skills didn't matter. Every, it was a big equalizer. Rich, poor, middle class, everybody was struggling in the same way. So at that point, a lot of the people were coming to the conclusion that they wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. And my father was actually resistant. He resisted quite a bit. And my mother was kind of neutral to it, but my father was the one that actually resisted the most until eventually he kind of gave up and he just like, okay, it's getting worse. And we ended up coming to Kenya. And that's when we, well, so when you go to a different country, then that's when you can actually file a petition or, 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 or like you can request to be bribed or accepted as a refugee by the UNHCR, which is the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. They're the the main authority that determines who's considered a ref refugee. And once that happens, then usually, if you're lucky, because vast majority of refugees actually never get resettled in a third country or a country that's, uh, that, that they would live in long term, most of them actually end up staying in refugee camps or mm -hmm. kind of, but some very few lucky ones actually end up getting picked by a country. So the United States happened to be the country that accepted us to become refugees who were resettled here. So when we came here, we came here with the understanding that we will be here in long term. Like you mentioned, you, you were internally displaced within Somalia to a few different cities and then Kenya and then eventually to the United States. But here you are with an undergrad and a graduate degree. And I'm just struck by, I mean, just the level of intelligence that you display and your command of the English language. And I'm wondering where and when were you able to learn that? How did you 
grow academically to get to the point where you're at right now in preparation, you know, for college and all of that? So thank you for the kind compliment. I actually, I don't think I can take all the credit for that. First of all, my parents really care about education, both of them. That was very, very important to them. Even during the civil war, we got homeschooled. So academically, we weren't really suffering as much. Mm. Uh, we went to, uh, when I was in Somalia, I, even if we were in a temporary city, we always went to school. So coming to the U.S., though, the biggest challenge was the language. Mm -hmm. And none of us spoke English. So I remember getting, like, they give you, like, a placement test when you start high school. Mm -hmm. And we came out towards the end of the first year or freshman year, what they call. It was, like, April. So the year only had, like, a couple of months left. At that point, they gave us the test, and I was, and I think I flanked it. <laughs> so I, 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 like most people would do. So what they did, though, the mistake that the school did was, Anybody, based on your English skills, language competency level, that's how they determined your overall standing in the class. So mm -hmm. very low level math, very low level science classes and all of that stuff. So after a really long struggle, because I knew, okay, I don't speak English, but I understand what algebra looks like, right? I mean, you, you get the concept, you know the equations and how they look like. Same thing with like chemistry. Those things don't change, right? The reactions, they look, they still look the same, the same. So I was like, okay, I think this is too elementary or too early. But then I didn't even have the ability to articulate that. So our guidance counselor was always like putting us down, trying to quote unquote manage our expectations. Like, no, don't do this. You have to be in this ESL programs, which mm -hmm. were great. But then basically what happened was then they did all of those things to us. But luckily, and at some point I was actually very disappointed with how the whole thing was happening. And then at some point I met a wonderful woman named Johanna Burden. And she actually was the person, the first person who seriously talked to me about higher education, other than my parents, right? My parents yeah. were like, you have to study higher education, you have to, but there was no credible way of us doing it. And that was the first person who asked me, are you going to university? And at the time I was actually in a, on a bus, we were going to a field trip for another kind of a partner school. It's called Portland Art and Technology High School. Mm -hmm. It was going to Portland High School. So there was a program that was joined and they wanted to actually get students who may not go to college, but somehow end up in the trades, right? So like a Whether trades and, and skills yeah. school. So that was something I was really interested. I was like, okay, if I can't go to university, if I don't see, maybe I can do that. So as I was going there, then I met this woman who just said like, hey, why don't you go to college? And I'm like, well, can I? Is there a way to do it? Mm -hmm. And that's how we started the conversation. And she was like, yeah, you got to do this, but I will encourage you to, to join this program called Upward Bound program, which was a, is a part of a trio program. It was actually one of the programs that were intended to take people who are disadvantaged somehow from lower socioeconomic status and mm -hmm. encourage them to go to pursue higher education. So that was a program that was built. I think it came out of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. But this was a program she knew I would definitely qualify given that I was a refugee and all that. So right away, she suggested that. I applied for it. I didn't get the first one. Because mm -hmm. that one was out of University of Southern Maine. I didn't get that one. But then I applied for another one that was hosted at the University of Maine called Appleburn Math and Science Program. And that even was even more attractive to me because at the time, my lowest, my biggest challenge was the English and, and like, you know, the history and things like that in this country. But I was still okay with my math and sciences. I was like, okay, I can just leverage that. So that's how I ended up in that program. I ended up attending that every summer in my high school, the rest remainder of the two summers from my high school and the year after that as what they call bridge program. And that's really how I get accepted to university. They help me with anything from applying for universities, filling out financial aid forms. I mean, they helped me a lot. And then at the same mm -hmm. time, of course, the program was very rigorous academically. So just having gone through their summer of research and writing things and learning about the scientific process and doing individual research and all of that stuff, with university, actual university professors living there, that kind of just showed me what I could do. And then just going back to the high school was like, just a joke again. I was like, okay, now I, I can't wait to be done because I already feel like I'm a college student. And then I also helped my younger siblings with that process. So that's how I, I get all of these things lined up in a perfect way that helped me to, to kind of get to where I am. Well, I mean, lining up in a perfect way is one thing, and it's fantastic that you had someone who saw the potential in you, but a lot of it comes back to also your determination and your 
energy and, and wanting to achieve this. And I'm wondering, where does that come from? Where do you think that that drive that you have or you had, because you could have just as easily said, I'm just going to learn a few sentences here and there, go work and make money and just not have to worry about any of this. So where was that coming from? That's a good question. So they say happiness is expectation minus outcome. If the outcome is better than the expectation, your, your happiness level goes up. So when you come from that kind of a harsh background where you basically let go your country and it's not an easy thing and you basically start your life over, you come here and you are extremely grateful. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people, at least they are, because you know alternatively what life could have been. So one of the things my parents would always say is, you didn't come here to play. We didn't do all of these sacrifices so you just can become a loser or you can... So I always knew that in back of my head that I am privileged, mm -hmm. even though at the time we didn't have much, but I knew like, okay, there is a responsibility. And then that plus, I also knew, okay, I, I actually, the first job I had in America, I was a dishwasher, right? Nothing wrong with that. But I realized like how hard you have to work for very little. I've seen people who are adults, people who migrated, who were here native, who were born American. and raised. And, and they were adults and they were trying to raise families. At the time I was in high school, I was like, okay, if this is going to be the alternative, then studying mm -hmm. becomes super easy. I mean, I was a good student. I wasn't like the most hardworking student. So that's one thing that changed because that was like, okay, now, because in America, a lot of it is not just the test. I was a good test taker, but I realized that that's, you can't just go and like ace the test. Great. But then if you're not doing the homework, first of all, you're going to at some point struggle with the test and you actually also still grade wise, you're going to suffer. So learning that kind of pushed me by necessity a lot of times because I didn't want to fall behind. One of his guidance counselors in high school told him, oh, I don't think, basically, you can't go to college, so you should probably just pick a trade. Mm. And I feel like his personality and who he is, he heard, like, you can't do that. Then there was someone who said, well, you can do that if you do this, this, and this. And he grabbed a hold of that and said, well, she said I can't. She's giving me a way to do it, and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm glad you mentioned the personality. I, I like to prove those who are doubters wrong. Or I, I hate when people put down others. And I just, for me, it was like stand up for truth because I knew I could do it. Although I sometimes was doubting it, but I kind of had an idea. Yeah, there's, it almost serves as a drive that I'm, I'm going to prove you wrong just because you shortcut or you underestimate my ability because of X, Y, or Z. I'm going to prove you wrong. So... So I'm glad that that other person showed up and gave you that other lifeline in which you held on to tightly. I laughed when you said that your dad said, you know, we didn't send you here to play because that's such a universal statement. <laughs> when I used to play soccer in college, my dad would just be like, why am I spending all this money on you? And you're just playing soccer. I'm like, dude, it's just a stress reliever. <laughs> it's like, Focus on your studies. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, my dad, to this day, he thinks I'm a terrible student. He, he still... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, amazing. And, and a lot of things that I didn't know about your background here. Uh, so thank you for sharing, Ismail. You mentioned that while in Kenya, you guys were applying for the refugee resettlement. Were you applying specifically to the U.S. or were you applying all over the place? Actually, all over the place. In fact, our first attempt was Australia. Okay. And that didn't work out. But we actually really wanted to go there. We actually have most of our extended family members, our cousins, aunts, uncles, most of them in Australia. Mm -hmm. So we were the first people from both parents. So we had zero cousins in the United States, for mm. example. We still have like maybe two right now. So and how long did the process to get your refugee status and resettlement in the U.S. take? So ours was actually a little bit unusual. It was actually much faster than most other folks, I would say, in part because my father worked with the UN in the early 90s when the United States intervened in Somalia. So mm -hmm. my father worked there and that kind of actually put a boost in our case. So with everything else being equal, there was some kind of favorable view towards those who have, because my father was, you know, like when, even though he didn't work directly with the US, he worked with the German troops when they were there and they were 
restoring like the electricity infrastructure. He studied also in Germany. So he mm. spoke German and Italian. It was like a natural fit for him. So he worked there like very briefly, like a year or like or nine months or something like that. But that alone, because the United States was basically the lead of that UN intervention of Somalia at the time, they basically said, okay, so anyone who kind of worked with the, under the auspices of the UN, then we're, we'll give them, we'll, we'll fast track them. So we were fast tracked. And they probably were vetted through that anyways and, you know, checked yeah. through to, to be there part was interviews, of it. Like it's really, I mean, overall, I think it takes a lot, but our case took about a, more than a year, I know. And and that was extremely fast. Yeah. Overall, it takes like, there are people that were there that's still there. I see. Decades later. It's getting at the point that even when it's fast, it's taken over a year. It's not a rubber stamp. It's not a quick, oh, you just filled out this application and here you go, open access to the United States. Oh, they take a lot of fingerprints, a lot of appointments. Up to, it's a really long and very, very rigorous process. So now you've moved to the United States. You managed to survive high school and you know get into college and you meet Brittany, who is now your wife of... 12 years? You guys have been married? How long have you been married, uh, Brittany? This year will be 15. This year will be 15. Well, we both got married around the same time then because we're getting into our 16th year right now. Yeah, uh, we got married in 2006. You guys met on uh, campus of University of Maine in Orono? Yeah. And Brittany, you said you are from, from Maine. And to our listeners, you are a white woman? Yes, I am. I identify as white. My... Dad's mom's side of the family is actually Franco-American, so immigrants of Quebec, which is north of Maine. So they immigrated to Lewiston, Maine, Mm -hmm. actually. So that's like how my dad's family came into Maine. But I'm four generations of my family lived in Maine. And we recently did actually our both of our DNA. Uh-huh. So you found some interesting. Yeah. So she also has some English background as well. Yeah. My my mom's side of the family, she was adopted. And so I didn't know anything about her, mm. her background, but very English on her side. And then very like French, French settlers to Quebec on my dad's side. And I mentioned this because there's an added layer, I mean, added layers to the relationship that you have that we want to explore and talk about a little bit more. So the first and most obvious layer, I think, is that you're an interracial couple. And then you add the layer that he's also an immigrant and that you, again, our our viewers can't see that, but you're wearing a hijab. So you're a convert to Islam as well. You're Muslim. So I want to, I want to peel back some of those layers and get at an understanding of what all of that entails, if you don't mind, if we can go down that road. So my first question is, is reaction from both your parents when you told them that you're going to get married? Well, as you can imagine, it's not, it's not welcome right away. I mean, it's a, usually a shock and there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about what that would entail. Mm-hmm. I think both sides were kind of skeptical of how successful this could be. I would say that it was not easy to explain while we were experiencing ourselves. In Maine, there was a lot of Somali immigrants that were actually, there was a tension between folks, even from her own community, like DeFranco, right? There was some pushback against Somalis. And I am Somali right now, imagining and I am going to her family. But at the same time, on on our side too, people, immigrants, when they come to this new country, they're trying to hold on to their culture, and one of the first signs they think is losing them is if they, if the people kind of like get too comfortable or too integrated with their locals. And that was another show with like, oh, okay, this is happening. So my parents were, I mean, my mother passed away just before we met actually uh, around that time. But my father was like, okay, is this uh, like some of the basic things like, mm-hmm. am I, am I going to be able to like, how's, how's my life going to be with you? What's my relationship? So he had a lot of questions. A lot but but of let's, let's talk about those, some of those basic things. Cause again, a lot of people don't have that experience. I mean, I, I know from my experience when I first told my parents and my wife, you know, is, is American from Michigan, all that there was resistance from my family and exactly how you phrased it of, of losing 
all my background and the heritage and whatever that I'm I'm fully integrated and assimilated and I'm I'm marrying someone from the locals, <laughs> as you put it. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because it's very important for people to understand that there is tension from both sides. So I'd like to hear from both of you on that. My family, we grew up relatively Christian. So, you know, we went to church off and on. My parents for sure believed religion and So when I told them, there was a lot of layers to it, right? I had recently converted to Islam, so I was changing everything that they knew Mm -hmm. about what we believed and what they thought that I believed. And then I was marrying or going to be with someone who was an immigrant and Black, which wasn't really the biggest issue it was more so they thought that i was changing my entire identity so that i could be with someone who had forced me to convert so the assumption was, was you converted for him right and not that on your was, own that volition was the the thought and i mean even still to this day people say like oh you're a muslim you know your husband must be a muslim and i'm like Well, he is, but (laughs) that's not the reason. So I feel like the pushback from my parents was more on the religious side versus, you know, the interracial side. But they had lots and lots of questions. We had long chains of emails and hard conversations and late nights fighting and trying to get them to understand, you know, what lifestyle I was going to be leading and so I, you know, I graduated high school, converted, you know, changed my religion, went to college, got married in all in a very short time. Mm-hmm. So it was just a lot going on for my parents. And then I feel on Ismail's side, his dad, you know, had the same questions, but kind of the reverse, you know, oh, she maybe is converted, but what happens when, you know? Is it long-term? Is this going to last? And then, you know, he asked, his dad asked simple questions like, well, how am I ever going to talk to her? Mm -hmm. Because he speaks okay English, but he, having a conversation on a deep level, he was like, well, how am I going to talk to her? Mm -hmm. Or how am I going to talk to my grandkids? And and had relevant And I think the the other concerns that people have, which, you know, all of it right now, right now is, has subsided is uh, luckily for us is that I think both our families kind of expected that or braced for where things will, will change for the worst, right? Yes. And I think, I mean, going back to the proving people wrong, we <laughs> right now, I don't think, I mean, if you were asking, I mean, my father right now is here with us, right? He, he's actually staying here for, for now. Mm-hmm. He doesn't live, but he's staying with us and he, he loves her. And me and Casey, my, my father-in-law, we have an amazing relationship we joke, you know. Um, in fact, I have a great relationship with her grand with her grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're Facebook friends. Imagine, like he likes my posts, right? <laughs> so, and also, you know, you know, her mom, her sisters, brothers. Like at this point, we have gone through that, but it wasn't like that always. Yeah, and, and I mean, I wanted to ask about that because it's it's important to highlight that even people who are accepting and who are welcoming such a change or a marriage of two different cultures, getting those two cultures together, the way that you grew up versus the way that she grew up and, you know, how they've imagined your life is going to be and and all of that. It comes to head, especially when it's your own child. But what's important to understand and to highlight in, in your case and in my case is that they, even though they had questions and maybe a little bit of reservation, they still went with it. And look at the relationship that you have right now and the relationship that you have with your with your families and, and in-laws. And it's a very important, in my mind, a highlight of how conversations and getting to know someone better can alleviate a lot of the concerns in the beginning. Yeah, I feel like both for my family, Ismail's family did not take long. It didn't take long. And it actually took his dad meeting me just one time to then apologize and say that he shouldn't have ever prejudged. But my family, it was more, it was 
a much longer conversation, much more drawn out. You know, at one point there was like, you're not allowed to pray here. Don't wear that thing on your head when you come here. That's Mm -hmm. not, you know, you're, that's not who you are. Don't pretend while you're here. So I think as the person whose family pushed back the most to remain patient and realize that conversation and explanation and being willing to listen to their concerns or their questions and to answer them and reassure them and let them know that, yes, this is going to be hard. You know, marrying someone from down the street is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, marriage is hard always. It's something you have to work at. But when you come from different languages, different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, you know, like, yes, I am Muslim, but I did not grow up Muslim, Mm -hmm. you know? So all of those things, it's going to make things exponentially harder. So we really took the time to answer the questions and take the time and let my parents be mad and let them be scared and all the things. But we, we, you know, we didn't let it ruin anything. And we gave them grace and knowing that with time and questions that they would come around. And that's what happened. Yeah, and, and not all the family members were actually on the same stage even. Yeah. You know, for example, we had my grandmother-in-law who was on board, you know, and it was surprising mm-hmm. to me because generally speaking, as the older people are, the harder them for them to accept it. Mm-hmm. But she actually accepted right away. In fact, even before we moved into our place, at some point we were staying in her place and, and now she just passed away uh, a couple months ago. And she yeah, actually moved to Oregon for 10 years. She's lived here with us. So also same thing with my sister and her husband. They basically welcomed us right off the bat. So I think there was a little bit of varieties, but overall, the general reaction was similar. You mentioned a lot of great points, too, as you as you're, were thinking about early on in your, in your life. And now, actually, it's probably what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, which you have two beautiful children and two cultures that you're trying to raise them with in a way does does that how does that play out in in your household i mean especially you know ismail with the somali background how much of it do you want them to learn about how much do you teach them about is it a point of contention is it how how do you navigate the cultural issues how honest do you want us to be <laughs> <laughs> like i mentioned before Marriage is hard. Raising kids is hard. Like, mm-hmm. even if you think you are very similar, it's it's always hard. Mm-hmm. So Ismail, as a person, he's very stubborn and very kind of stuck in his way and has a strong opinion about everything, which is one of the things that I loved about him from the beginning. But when it comes to raising our children and the daily kind of things that come up, right? You know, our kids are getting older now and it is, can be a point of us to say, well, like, I don't agree with that or I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think we should be putting effort into that. Culturally, Ismail is very much like, well, they need to drink their milk and they need to eat their meat and, you know, force Mm -hmm. them to kind of eat breakfast, lunch and dinner, even if they're not hungry, because they need to eat and they need to grow and where I'm like, well, they're cereal for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Or not if they're not hungry, let them not eat. Yeah. So yes, I I feel like there is points where we and I think sometimes sometimes I actually wonder, is it personality what is clashing? Or is it the culture? It could also be the gender too. Because sometimes I know even my own parents, they didn't have the same parenting style. Mm-hmm. So my mom was always like softer and let me get away with things as what as opposed to the father. So I'm like, okay, I am the enforcer. You're the nice person, but she'll be the person, right? For example, I mean, this is one of the ways it goes. The kids usually know if, if she says something, no, that's like the worst thing because then <laughs> like, there's no way out of it. But, but if I say no, they, they, they know there's a softer sometimes standard. Like they want to go outside and they don't want to wear a jacket, right? If I'm busy, that's one thing. But if I'm like, I might actually kind of like say, hey, you have to do this because I know I want to protect them. But whereas my wife's stance is like, well, you know, you're going to feel it. You'll get cold and you'll learn. (laughs) And that's interesting because 
I come from the harsher environment, so I should be the one saying like, hey, let them do that. But she also comes from Maine, and Maine is like people from Maine, they're a little bit more rugged. So she comes from that also, like, which is like, let's just do it and let's not worry about it. So I'm, I'm not sure sometimes who's the African. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's funny, and I guess it's something, again, a lot of people don't realize that it, it shows up in the mundane things. Like, you, you know, we're arguing about they should be wearing a jacket or not, or yeah. they, they should be having a breakfast or not, <laughs> you know. But that's where it, it shows up. And, you know, when when you're two who are married and who love each other and care about the children, it's it's just, it's funny when you sit back and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that that was a thing until it became a thing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And honestly, like, you know, from the beginning of our relationship, we saw these cultural differences. And even sometimes, like, I'll say something, like, via text message or say something to him. And because of still a language barrier, he didn't understand either my sarcasm Mm -hmm. or what I meant by saying that. But as time goes on, things pop up. So we were married for almost four years before we had kids because we were finishing school. Mm -hmm. So like a whole plethora of things arose once we had kids and as we're starting to see them move developmentally into a different phase. So now we have different, you know, different standards, you know, as our kids get older, things change. So we're seeing new things arise all the time that, well, we didn't think we needed to have a conversation conversation on this or that didn't come up before, but now it is. So parenting style aside, Ismail, is there a sense of worry that they're going to lose the culture that you hold dear? Is that where that's coming from? Or is it that, well, this is what I know. This is what I grew up with. Well, yeah. So so for me, I mean, obviously, culture is important to me, but not in the sense that I care about just raising good, resilient children. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing important. Culture is very important to me, and I think that's usually not the the issues. It just plays out sometimes because I was inculturated in a different way than Brittany. And so what are some of the things that are okay with her sometimes and some of the things that are okay with me might not always fit. So I might overcompensate also some mm-hmm. things, right? Because I know like some of the things that my parents didn't care about because they were like, okay, this is going to be a default. So I might overcompensate. So Sometimes I also feel like it's not just even like my wife being non-Somali, but it could just mean like my kids are growing up in a different culture than I was growing up. So even if it doesn't matter, like even if she was, uh, let's say, a Somali, I might still have acted in a certain way or I might still have the same concerns. So I look at her as not a lot of different, like she's not that much different than, let's say, some of the other Somali uh, sisters she went to college with. But there are some differences in, in obviously with the familial things. But at the end of the day, I feel like some of my pushback or paranoia, if you will, or a little bit of overprotection can come from me trying to overcompensate raising children in a culture other than different than, than I grew and, up. And I think for you, it's not even necessarily culture, it's religion. I think that's where most of his, yes, he's Somali and he's very connected to the Somali community, but in kind of a different way. He doesn't care about like these clan things and like that kind of thing. And he's obviously in an interracial marriage and all of that. But I think his culture losing worry comes from losing the religion and that being. Yeah. Which I I can fully relate to because I think, you know, Smail and I are, are similar in many different ways, but I think for us, the what remained constant through our travels or living in different places has been the faith aspect, the religion aspect. So that's at least to me what I worry about the the most as well. I mean, I yeah, I'm engaged with the Arab community. Uh, you know, my kids are probably learning Arabic, but they're learning Arabic because I want them to understand the Quran and be able to read the Quran, not because I want them to hold on to the heritage necessarily. I mean, I feel yeah. a sense of loss that they will not enjoy Arabic poetry as much as I enjoy it. But that's not really the driving force for me. It's more of the, I want them to understand the Quran. I want them to be good Muslims growing up in the United States. 
Yeah, and to add another layer even, like, because we actually, both of our kids started what we call like uh, the, the madrasa to learn how to read and write Arabic and also Islamic sciences early, early, right? But the issue that I'm also worried about is like, okay, now I also have to teach my language, which is totally different, right? Mm-hmm. For you, at least it's kind of a combo. Yeah. For me, it's totally separate, right? I have to now teach the Somali culture and language, which is another thing. And how much bandwidth do you have sometimes? Yeah. So that's why I sometimes like feel like, okay, we're always like trying a new program or like getting like a bunch of books, right? And trying to do things. Yeah, that adds to the sometimes the pressure. So I want to shift gear to something uh, or, or a second, third, fourth, whatever layer of the relationship that I think we it's prudent that we address in, in our conversation, which, again, you're an interracial couple. Uh, Ismail, you're, you're, you're black. That's how you're identified by society as they see you, probably before they know that you're Somali or, or what have you. The first impression is obviously that you're black. Brittany, you're white. I wonder, especially with the recent social reckoning that we're having with the understanding of the black experience in the United States. I want to, one, Ismail, see what your level of relationship with that is, as, a, as again, a, a black man walking the, the streets of the United States. And then also I would like from Brittany your perspective on it as someone who's married to a black man, you know, the, the, the added layer, you know, forget the immigrant part for a minute, but added the, the layer of you're married to a black man and raising mixed children. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I'll start with it. So one of the things that actually we, we were very excited about was that during the Obama election, right? Yeah. We kind of saw our something that was connecting for us, like Obama had an East African father, an American mother, you know, I'm East African, she's American, like white American. So we basically saw like, okay, so our children will have a place. That was mm-hmm. before even our, we had kids. So I, I, I was excited a little bit that, okay, my children, if I have children with her, I mean, I, I could become a president someday. That was like a reassuring to see. But at the same time, seeing like George Floyd episode was then like, well, with that child could also get killed. So one of the things we did like, and if you want to talk about that more, we actually were very involved in the protests. Mm-hmm. The I, Black Lives very, Matter? Yeah, Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, I mean, I just think... For me, in terms of, like, racial profiling and those things aside, like, from the Muslim aspect of it, right? Because I always find that in the airport and things. But you get asked yeah. where, where you're from because you wear the hijab? <laughs> yes, from the hijab. Yeah, she um, got profiled and she, cause she, couldn't, she couldn't accept that. <laughs> but here in Corvallis, we are, you know, people are pretty educated here and... Overall, we're pretty lucky here in terms of the racial the racial front. But as a white mom to mixed children, as these things started to arise and movements started to happen and all of the injustice things that have been happening, I had like this very strong sense of like fear. Mm. that I'm not doing enough and what's going to happen, especially to my black son one day. And, you know, as a white mom raising black children, you want to like educate them and make sure that they know how to talk to the police, how to the, you know, like those type of things. So I feel like that is my kind of side of that. Like there was a sense of fear of, you know, well, what happens when my husband gets pulled over for, a, you know, a, a sticker on the back of his car that, you know, then he's profiled by a white cop. So we haven't had too many, like, you know, people shouting on the street or whatever, but there is a sense of fear of like, well, what could happen? Yeah. And sometimes even they're, they're more blunt. We bought hoverboards for the children and I returned it. Actually, she called before I returned it. And they were like, yeah, sure, bring it back. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we didn't have receipts. Then I show up with the hoverboard. And they asked me like so many questions to the point. They said, no, we, we're not going to return it. Hmm. And I had to literally get on the phone with them. It's like, didn't you talk with them? And so I felt right off the bat, there was different standards for how they would treat a white woman <laughs> versus how they would treat a black man. 
And that was obvious to me at the time, like when I kept talking, then later on they ended up doing it, but it wasn't a simple process. And those things happen too, in a, you know, in a settled way. So Brittany, did you imagine at some point in your life before your marriage to Ismail and everything that you would be worried about walking the streets? No, no, I did not. And it really didn't actually like hit me until I had children. And Hmm. then, you know, you're all, you're more aware of all of those things and, you know, and your husband means something more to you than just your husband. Now he's the father of your children. And so I feel like I, I didn't ever anticipate that like one day that I might have to be worried what happens to my husband or what's going to happen to my children if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time or if they're, you know, pulled over or whatever. So no, it's not something that I had ever really thought of. So that sense got heightened for you both, but for you especially, Brittany, you said more of a, more of a realization after having the kids and, and seeing. Yeah, the... and, and, and more so like more recently, right? Since... Mm-hmm. Of course, it happens, you know, and, and we don't always hear about it or we don't always know or, you know, it's not on the forefront of our brain that, that those injustices are happening. And, of course, they happen, you know, they've been Unfortunately, happening. Unfortunately, all the time. But when it started to come up and, and we heard about it and then we heard about the frequency of it happening and, you know, and then it really becomes apparent, that's when I really was like, wow, like, I should be knowing about these things. Mm-hmm. You know, I almost had a sense of like guilt as well that I wasn't doing my part or I wasn't doing enough as a mom of mixed children. But, you know, then with the awareness, I feel like my fear kind of, wow, it actually really could happen to mm-hmm. my husband, the father of my children, or, you know, one day my son. I mean, in the past few years, we, we've seen that kind of rhetoric emboldened and we've seen it, as you said, the, the frequency or at least the, the awareness of it has increased. And Ismail, I'm, I'm wondering with the whole years of discussion about the quote unquote, the Muslim ban, and I think Somalia was one of the countries listed in that as well, how that impacted you and how that might have impacted you as a family as well. Yeah, that was really hard. And if, if I can take you back, uh, remember how I said we came here as refugees. Yeah. One of my cousins and his entire family were actually waiting for their flight. They've gone through the whole process and they were waiting to just come here. And because of that Muslim ban, they stayed. So that's direct impact of my family overall. But also like just seeing my adopted country like literally not allowing my native country and like me just carrying a U.S. passport, which says I was born in Somalia. It's like a con, I almost became like a walking contradiction. Two of my countries now are not in a good term. My people are not allowed to come here. Not only that, but also my continent was called shithole. So those are the kind of things that just make you think, okay, you know, this is not what I thought because, you know, Regardless of American politics at the time and the day, we always thought that we took it for granted that people would be welcomed. Mm-hmm. But that literally suddenly stopped. And I was like, oh, this is a new norm now. We can be banned. And this banning can also expand to other people. So that's kind of worried me. So, so why stay and get involved and fight such rhetoric? Why not just pick up and go back to Somalia or even back to Kenya or, or somewhere else? Why are you still staying in the United States and having to deal with that and having to actually fight against it? Because I know you're involved in a lot of education about these issues. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that's a lot That's a lot of people would say those things, but I actually think that would be me letting people, these haters, win. Mm. Uh, because right now, I actually have rights, right? I can vote. I can go and testify before legislators. I can write letters on newspaper. I can. I'm an actual stakeholder i'm a taxpayer mm-hmm. so i feel like if i'm not the one challenging because even the loudest of the loud they can't vote more than me they cannot do i mean yeah if they are richer than me maybe they can 
influence a little bit, but... have, like influence more. But there are a lot of people like with 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 like knowledge with everything that I can do comes with a lot of responsibility. So for example, one of the things that also involved in my family, one of the videos we played, I mean, we 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 do a lot of uh, YouTube or things like that talks. One of the videos me and my son did talking about the wall, for example, it was watched by over 100,000 people. Wow. Imagine like a lot of people were responding to me. I would say 70% of them were non-Somali or 80% of them were non-Muslim, non-Somali, mm-hmm. just Americans, just sending me a lot of, great feedback so i was like okay at least i am supported it's not like not all americans are hating us you know this is actually a small minority i mean not, not a small minority but it's, it's a critical mass but it's not there's not a majority of americans who believe in this ismail and Brittany, thank you so much for for a wonderful conversation very in, enlightening and, and i wish we had hours upon hours to to continue this conversation what would you like to say to our listeners out there? Anything you would like to share with them? The floor, the mic is yours. And that means thank you, Ahmed Abdul Majid, and your team for your time today. And I thank also my wife for being part of this uh, with me. I think I would just like to say to people who are listening to always listen. I think that's the most important piece to learning about others, to learning about how people live their lives and how relationships function and, you know, is to listen and be gracious with others and gracious with yourself, but really listening because that over the years has been the piece that has gotten us through the hardships is us listening and the people in our lives listening as well. Behind Immigrant is a production of WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne and was created and hosted by Ahmed Abdelmajid. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a review. To learn more about this season's guests, visit theinimmigrant.com or find us on Facebook and join the conversation. Today's episode was edited by Callie Tietelbaum. This is co-producer Katie Anderson signing off until next time. Thanks for listening. From WBOI, Fort Wayne.